Please present your octopus. Hello, and welcome to the China Podcast. You're listening to episode three. Follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the China Podcast. That is at the China Podcast. Leave a like, leave a DM, engage with us. We'd love to hear from you. And email us. Email us. Do you have a story to tell? Any suggestions for topics you might want to hear about? Tell us. Share them with us. Don't be shy. Since our last episode, we've been busy. We've been expanding, and we're thrilled to say that you can now listen to us on Google Podcasts and Apple iTunes. You can also find us on a place called Stitcher if you'd rather listen to us there. And for that person who asked us over the weekend if the podcast was up on YouTube, the answer is we're glad to say yes, yes, it is. Yes, we are. We are there. Yes, we are there. So subscribe to us, like and subscribe, and all that jazz. Subscribe to your preferred platform. Um, we're only new on YouTube, so. Just type in. We're only up a few days. Yeah. Navy Barracks, the China podcast, or mosquitoes, the China podcast. Yep. You'll find you, it. You might need to do a little, a bit, little of digging. bit of digging. Um, show us your support, and we'll reward you with a little treat for the ears. So the, yeah, the podcast is with all the major players now. It's up on Apple, it's on Google, it's on YouTube, and it's on Spotify. So go ahead, pay those places a visit, listen to us, subscribe to us. Make our day. Well said, Clint. Right before we move on, we must first acknowledge all the fantastic feedback we received following the release of our first two episodes of the podcast. I've been blown away, mightily blown away. We're over the moon. The response it was unexpected. Um, we've had a yeah, we've had a good number of downloads to go with it, didn't we? Yeah, and and across all platforms at that. Yeah. So, according to what we read, we're in the top 25% of downloads for a seven-day period. That is true. And there's a website called The Podcast Host, which provides guides and tutorials, tips for podcasters, all kinds of helpful bits and bobs. Um, now, they say there that if you can manage just 26 downloads for an episode in this first week of release, then you can consider that good going. We did it in a day. We did it in a day at the weekend. And we're delighted. Yes, we are. So thank you. Thank you to everyone for, for taking the time to listen. Uh, thank you for your kind words. It's much appreciated. And thank you to one of the folks in the Irish WeChat group for their personal an anecdote about teaching poetry, the poetry of WB Yeats, to disadvantaged kids in Dublin. How did that go again? I don't know, I'm sure he won't mind us telling the story. So the teacher in question was asking for feedback on whichever one of Yeats's poems they were discussing. And one of the young lads down the back of the classroom shouted, Shy! In response to the question. Oh yeah, and he, he asked the student to elaborate, didn't he? Yeah, he did, so elaborate. He goes, well, yeah, it's fucking shy. I mean, you have to emphasize somehow, don't yeah. you? Uh, and of course, in Irish lingo, dropping an F-bomb like that is the best way to clarify an opinion. Yeah. And if you're listening right now and you have no idea what I just said, shy in this context is shite or shit, just with an E and a, an added expression. Um, 
And that's how we'd say it in Ireland, and particularly Dublin. Now, we're not all about bad language on this show, but speaking of shite, Owen, have you ever eaten a duck's arse? Do you know what? I probably have. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in general, do you like barbecue duck? I love it. That's great. Um, I love the way you can just buy it on the street, it's cooked, you walk away eating it out of a plastic container, and it's cheap. Yeah, those guys seem to be on every street corner in China. Yeah, and if they aren't, it's cooked chicken or some sort of cooked something. Yeah, it's always one or the other. But, you know, what got me thinking about this week's podcast was one of the, these barbecue ducks that, that we've been talking about. Uh, like all the usual cuts of meat are there. You've got the, the breast chunks, the legs, the wings, even the head and neck. And the feet. And... Can you actually eat the head of it? It's never interested me. Like, it looks rock solid. It's kind of like something that would probably break a pane of glass <laughs> yeah, if, you, if, you, if you toss it. It doesn't look like something you can bite. I don't know what no, you're doing. It does, gonna... doesn't look like it has much meat at all. I don't know where you'd start with a duck's head. Like, rip the skin off it or suck the skin off it, suck the brain. What, I don't know. What, what would you do? Maybe no. suck the brain out of it? I don't know. I do love a bit of, bit of fish cheek. Yeah, that's good. It is good. Um, it's small. You wouldn't even call it bite size. It's tiny. It's little. Yeah, I'm not sure. It nearly melts in your mouth. Isn't yeah, it? it's very good. Very good. Um, but with the with the duck, I mean, we have all the usual cuts of meat that I mentioned. But mm. then we also have the arse. Or the posterior. Or the bum, to be less vulgar. Right. <laughs> right. So, you know, the, the duck's arse is a peculiar piece of meat. Um, it tastes different to the other parts of the duck and it's got this how would you describe it it's a a kind of a smokiness to it It has a kind of a smokiness to it yeah and it can be weirdly inconsistent yeah sometimes it's like highly edible but other times only alright I don't know maybe it depends on whether the the duck relieved itself before it was barbecued (laughs) or being shot (laughs) might have been the case yeah Uh, but yeah, I was looking at this thing on the plate in front of me and it got me thinking about all the unusual foods that they have here in China and more to the point, uh, why these kinds of foods are eaten here. Uh, and this is what we want to discuss this week. We'd like to take you on a culinary odyssey through the weird and wonderful foods of China and maybe also dispel some of the myths and the misconceptions that surround Chinese food culture. Let me ask you on. Would you consider yourself a fussy eater? I'll eat pretty much anything. I'll eat pretty much anything, but I don't... This is probably not the best thing to do in China, but I don't really like when everybody's eating out of the same bowl. Right. So I don't really get on well at hot pots and stuff like that. Mm. And when everybody sits down and they have the big plates of food and people are reaching over and taking little bits of food out of each plate and then you know going back to putting it in their mouth and stuff I'm, I'm not I don't I don't have any choice I have to put up with it but I don't really like it yeah I mean China it's not really the place for people who fuss about their food is it no 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 like I mean if you have a particular diet you can get by um, most foods and ingredients they're all here but there might be times when you go out into a restaurant and you look at a picture on a menu and what comes out of the door 
might not be the same thing that you ordered. Right, uh, and I mean it's it's worth having a like a translator app on your phone handy if, if you don't have the language. Have you ever taken that punt? Um, loads of times, plenty of times, yeah. Have you ever tried durian pizza? If you gave me a durian pizza, I would throw that thing out the window. Um, have you? Uh, well, thankfully, I've never fell into that trap. I mean, what looks like melted cheese certainly doesn't smell like it. No, the people here, they're obsessed by durian. Yeah, yeah. it's... What, durian, it's like this large, prickly-looking fruit with a kind of creamy, custardy center. Yeah, it's a huge fruit. It kind of looks like a stegosaurus. Yeah, it's like sort of thorny to the touch. Um, and in spite of it being a, like a quite exotic thing to look at, it smells repulsive. You can smell it on my lower. You know, since come to China, I have become more adventurous. But durian is the one food that I definitely never go near. It smells like feet, man. It smells like feet. How adventurous have you been? Somewhat, I suppose. Uh, probably not as as much as others, but I have eaten a yak and some donkey meat. Uh, Century eggs, duck yeah. blood. I've, I've tried the the lining of a cow's stomach. Tripe? Tripe? I don't think so. That's the lining of a cow's stomach. Oh, oh that's what it's called? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Tripe, eh? That's a new one. Uh, yeah, maybe some other foods too, but that's all I can think of at the moment. Yeah, we'll talk about century eggs now in a bit. Um, but a few of what you mentioned there might sound like delicacies to many, but they're they're practically they're normal things here in China they're normal things to eat did you ever see that episode of Carl Pilkington on An Idiot Abroad I think he was in Beijing and he, he was freaking out at the sight of this local lad eating a fetus egg yeah was it, was it actually a fetus that he was eating well I mean the, the TV show made it out to be that way anyway yeah so there's a couple of things there I've actually I know where he was because I saw that episode the Carl Pilkington episode Mm. Um, he was in Beijing. He was in the night market in Beijing, which is r- right close to the Forbidden City, actually. Right yeah. close to Tiananmen Square. Mm. So it's a popular part of town. It's a popular part of town. You can go in, you can eat snakes and scorpions and all sorts of weird stuff. Um, but when I was in Chengdu, Carl mm. Pilkington was actually in Chengdu. And I was staying in a youth hostel with a bunch of foreigners. And, you know, one of them says, oh, English guy oh Carl Pilkington is down in the down in the park the park around the corner yeah I'm like Who, who's Carl Pilkington but you know whatever I'll go and have a look so I go down and there's a, a film crew and Carl Pilkington is standing there so, you know he's just just a baldy lad with a head like an orange and <laughs> <laughs> just a baldy lad with a head like an orange as someone's filming I went to the bathroom and I tell you I was more impressed that day by the man that stood beside me the man that stood beside me he was he looked like he was Mongolian of origin, mm. but he was at least seven feet tall. He's the largest human being that I've ever seen in my life. Wow. Um, but yeah, that was the day that I I actually met Carl Pelkinton, and I actually went, hello, Carl Pelkinton. And he went, hello. And that was that. And that was it. And that, that's, yeah. that's pretty much him. So and it that, sounds like him. That pretty Something, much, yeah. yeah. And yeah, like, they definitely threw him into the into the deep end on that show, but I, I suppose that was the premise of the show. Yeah, that was the whole thing. I think there's a, I think there's a, a misconception on many levels as to what the Chinese diet is. Um, 
but as as out there as they often are, the quality or the, of how they cook things, you can't can't beat it. It's it's fantastic how they cook things. Yeah, it can't be faulted. It is great. Yeah, um, like you mentioned just there, how you tried the duck's blood and the cow's stomach before. How did they go down? Well, to eat them without being boiled in a hot pot uh, would be quite an ordinary experience. Yeah. So I used to have my father used to eat tripe. You see, cow stomach. Um, I don't like it at all, to be honest. Um, and it is kind of bland. And you, to me, I agree with you. What they're cooked in and how they're made is what makes them appetable. Um, yeah, the ingredients that are used, they're crucial. Yeah, and like, is there anyone better in the world to use such an abundance of ingredients in their cooking than the Chinese? Ah, they're a great bunch of lads. The best. I like the the thing about it here is that in terms of animal parts especially very little is thrown aside the butchers use everything every part and there's always somebody to buy it I'll tell you a little story there's a there's a butchers uh, in Dublin 7 um, it's up on the Fibsborough Road and I used to live around the corner from it and these usual butchers and you'd sell sausages and pork shops and all that sort of stuff yeah this is going back to the end of the 90s. This butcher's shop realised that there was a lot of Chinese people hanging around. Mm. And one day one of the Chinese lads goes in and says, where can I get Where can I get some, some trotters? Where can I get some pig trotters? Yeah. And the following day, the window of the, the butcher's shop had pig's feet. Uh, oh, wow. Like all around the all around the bottom of it, mm. and he was selling loads of them. He, I used to go in there and get my sausages, and he sold loads of pigs' feet. Yeah, yeah, and they they literally they use everything, and you're probably your your average market here has thousands of people walking through it every day. Oh, easily, easily. Yeah, how many of them do you think go for the stinky tofu? There's always one. Yeah, so tofu. Tofu is made from condensed soy milk. So all you soy milk latte people out there, um, that's what tofu is made from. And it's pressed into solid white blocks, usually vary in softness. Um, it's very similar to cheese making. So it's, it's kind of like a, a soy milk cheese and it has lots of health benefits. It's low in calories and it has, it's really high in protein. Yeah, so it's a great alternative to meat. Yeah, so if you don't eat meat. Yeah, it's a great alternative. Um, so if you're vegetarians out there, and don't worry, if you're in China and you don't eat meat, tofu is a great way to get your protein. Um, but let's talk about stinky tofu. Now, stinky tofu is a snack food. It's served in these small little cubes which are skewered together, salty in a little little bowl and it's called stinky tofu because of its smell it's really overbearing so to make you understand um why the way it does it's it's made from a mixture of tofu combined with fermented milk vegetables and a meat or fish flavored brine sounds very much like you're describing (coughs) a witch's broth doesn't it doesn't it and the you know the smell you can't you can't escape the smell um 
So anyway, the brine is most effective when it's weeks or months old. Mm. And the aging process combined with the blend of ingredients makes it stink. It makes a really potent smell. Yeah, I don't remember actually having tried it before. Would you recommend I give it a go? Well, we'll I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go down to Jfong Bay and we'll go to the food street and we'll give it a blast. What uh, do you reckon? Yeah, sounds like a good plan. Uh, so yeah. You'll know where they're selling it. You'll be able to smell it a mile off. Ah, yeah. Tell me about these century eggs that you mentioned earlier. Uh, is there a story behind them? There is. There's a, there is a big story behind the century eggs. Um, now, so, it, this is a story based on chance. Century eggs, they're basically preserved eggs. And back in the day, about six centuries ago, during the Ming Dynasty, not even the Qing Dynasty, the one before, um, this farmer was out walking through his fields in rural Hunan. And he happened upon some naturally preserved duck eggs in muddy water. Kind of like a, like the, the bog man in Ireland, the mummified eggs. Yeah, yeah. Right? So... As you do, he picked them out of the water and he took a bite of them. Of course, yeah. <laughs> naturally, naturally. Why would he do that? But he did. Right. Anyway, but he enjoyed it. He enjoyed the taste. And so he put a little bit of salt on them. It's like, oh yeah, here's some mummified eggs that have probably been here for thousands of years. So I'll, I'll put some salt on them and mm, eat them. Yeah, give them some flavour. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he, he then he, he came up with a plan and his plan was to replicate the eggs using manual preservation techniques. Right, and he was a farmer. Was he making it up on the spot? He might might as well have been. Um, but you know what? Whatever he did, it worked. Because uh, the eggs, they were instant hit. And they went on to become a delicacy all over China. So, how do you prepare century eggs? Well, nowadays, we use chicken, duck, or quail eggs, whatever we want. And they're soaked in a large volume of black tea, lime, salt, and freshly burned wood ash. And they can be soaked for anywhere from seven weeks to five months, and they achieve the century egg taste. Right, and the the lime is an interesting addition. The lime, yeah, so the muddy water that the farmer discovered the eggs in, it had traces of lime, and hence the reason why they're so well well preserved. Um, one other thing is they have a tendency to t- change colour. They they, they kind of go a grey or a green. They they turn into different colours because of the lime and the, the preserving fact. Yeah, and sometimes they're like, it's like you're looking at a crystal or something. Sometimes like it's a, like you're looking at a crystal, yeah. Like a, like a fossil, you know the fossil from Jurassic Park? It's got a mosquito inside. Yeah. They, they extract the DNA from the mosquito. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The dinosaur DNA from the mosquito. Yeah. Well, maybe they had a whole bunch of witches and they, like, the witches that made the stinky tofu and they'd be able to tell your future from the preserved egg. Ah, that's interesting. Maybe that's the, it's a crystal ball. Mm, It's not a crystal ball, a crystal egg. (laughs) A crystal egg. (laughs) (laughs) Could be. Have you ever tried spinach noodles? Oh, the green ones. Yeah? Yeah. 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 Oh, they're they're good, yeah. You like them? Yeah. I do, yeah. Um, Now, spinach noodles, they're more popular in the north of China. In particular, Xi'an. Uh, and spinach noodles, or botsai mian, as they're called in Mandarin. Uh, you know, they're, they're really like any other type of noodle, and except that the, the spinach is kind of ground down into a green into paste. a bit of a powder, yeah. 
and and then like added to the dough. Yeah. Uh, mixed together, you get the the green spinach dough. Yeah. And then of course you do the usual thing, like you do with noodles. You you knead it and and shape it into into sheets before cutting them into noodles. Yeah. Uh, to be boiled alive, <laughs> in a big pot of water. <laughs> um. So yeah, just like just like regular noodles, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the with the spinach. Uh, there's a fella on YouTube. He's called the Food Ranger. He's worth checking out for for anyone interested. Uh, and in w- one of his videos, he goes to Xi'an and he sees this this uh, exact spinach making process uh, being carried out before him. The Food Ranger is he popular? Oh yeah, he's got like five million subscribers and five million. But his videos are superb. They're superbly made, uh, and he's fluent in Mandarin too. So he's five. Is he a local or is he a foreigner? No, he's American. He's American. Yeah. And f- five million subscribers on food in China. I'll yeah, definitely check yeah, him out. Yeah. That sounds cool. But, but he goes to other places as well, I think, around the world. But he does oh, yeah. a, a lot of his, an awful lot of his content is, is from China. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Uh, yeah, if you want to learn uh, how to make traditional hand-pulled noodles, there are schools all over Lanzhou and Gansu. Uh, would you like to, to learn to. how to make them? I'd love to. I would absolutely love it. I love those hand-pulled noodles. It just... I have this image in my head of a of an old movie mm. of old China, and you see them spinning the noodles out. I'd I'd love to be able to do that. Yeah, it's a very unique skill. Yeah, like is. and and it is a skill. It it might look easy to the eye, but yeah, there is a technique, there is a method to it, uh, and it's it's on my bucket list. Yeah. Uh, and like you, you get a certificate when you <laughs> when you complete the course with them. Yeah. It takes about two or yeah. three weeks or something. I've graduated in noodle pulling. I've graduated in noodle pulling. I can uh, pull my noodles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this certificate qualifies you to work in any hand pulled noodle restaurant anywhere in the world. Isn't that nice? Yeah. So you can yeah. open your own establishment. Oh, that'd be very nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah, we've t- we touched on basically there but a, but a fraction of the unusual foods in China uh, we could go on we could go on for ages and ages but I think it's worth pointing out that it's not only the Chinese who eat strange things so do lots of others around the world here's looking at you Louisiana yeah uh, um, when you think about it the French eat snails and frogs legs and horse meat yeah, the British eat stilton the snail, do you know what stilton is? I know what stilton is, yeah. No, and uh, they like it. They're, they're, oh, look at this blue stilton. It's great. Mm-hmm. Isn't it so fancy? Yeah, it's mouldy cheese. It's mouldy cheese, and they age it long enough that it's called walking cheese because it's crawling with maggots. Oh, lovely. lovely. Maggots. So remember that the next time you eat stilton. Yeah, and the Aussies, they, some places down under, they cook up caterpillars. Um, and they they build it as a tourist treat. Oh, how inviting! Yeah. <laughs> and then, then, of course, in in Japan, uh, you know the the fugu fish. I think yeah, that's, that's how you call it. Yeah. It's highly prized, uh, despite it having a poisonous sack that, if not removed with due diligence, can kill the person eating it. And the burning question: Why? Why in the name of God would you take the risk of eating that fish when there are plenty of other delicious fish in the sea? But anyway, Louisiana, um, what kind of mischief did they get up to? Alligators. 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 In New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. 
Louisiana. Louisiana, New Orleans, Louisiana. I know we won't poke, poke fun at them. No. It's a nice part of the world. Um, yeah, alligator is grilled. Uh, and they put meat on a stick and they call it an alligator sausage. So alligator meat on a stick and they, they call it a sausage? Yeah. Someone's got to teach them Americans English. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the moral of the story here is don't point your fingers at China when it comes to eating habits. Look at yourselves. Look at what you're eating and the type of food that you guys eat. Because I know I'm Irish and steak and kidney pie has kidneys in it and black pudding. Black pudding is coagulated pig's blood and I love it. Yeah, everyone does. Yeah. We eat it for a, a fry up breakfast. Absolutely. Every, everyone eats it. Like I'd put it in a salad. You go to, you go and stay in, in any hotel in Ireland, yeah. a bed and breakfast and your breakfast they're going to have yeah. some black pudding some white Absolutely. pudding as well I'd eat that stuff raw would you yeah I would yeah I have done no yeah you the, felt okay afterwards the clonacilty black pudding chop that up give it a go it's alright it's already cooked you're only reheating okay okay yeah. didn't know that um, but yeah don't be like Marco Polo when he labelled the Chinese barbaric for the things he saw them eat um, I mean like sometimes you must accept that different cultures will bring different food cultures. This is just how things are. Uh, nobody's perfect. And we're all learning. And we're all becoming more aware. Not only of what, what we eat. But also the impact our food consumption yeah. has on like animal species. It does have a... And the planet. And the planet. And the methane that gives off, given off by cows and stuff like yes, that. Yes, yes, yes. You know, it's... It does actually impact what you eat impacts the environment. But anyway, that's a story for another day. Indeed. So what are the given reasons behind why Chinese people will eat almost everything? Let's first consider the geography of the country. China is this vast geographically diverse expanse of land. It is nearly 10% of all plant species and 14% of animal species on earth. When you have such a rich geographical landscape, then you're certain to have a wide variety of ingredients. Different diets exist across different parts of the country. So even if urban dwellers have a more regular diet, those living in rural China will probably have a more adventurous palate. Take Sichuan for example. Sichuan consumes the most rabbit in the country, and rabbit head is a delicacy. If you were to go to Ganan County in Gansu province, then you'd find a lot of yak meat. Yeah, and it's it's also worth looking at traditional Chinese medicine when finding reasons as to why Chinese people consume such a wide variety of foods. In Chinese medicine, many plants and animals are used. In the minds of Chinese people, medicine and food come from the same source. And, you know, there's a lot of... Your body's a temple. What you put into it is what you get out of it. And that... That is, Chinese people think that eating is the same as taking medicine. It's, and this, in turn, it determines what they will eat for food. I can give you some examples, but it's worth instead just going and checking them out. But what I will say is that textbooks on ch traditional Chinese medicine identify more than 1,500 animal species that can be used for medicinal, medicinal purposes. Anything from a seahorse to a rhino. That is true. Uh, finally, let's briefly mention religion. 
as a, reg- as a uh, reason. Um, 90% of Chinese people consider themselves irreligious and they don't share the kind of food taboos that you might find in faiths like Judaism and Islam. Uh, Chinese people don't have a god. They instead worship their ancestors, their parents and their grandparents. So they're not like Jews or Christians or Muslims and others who have, who have religious rules that kind of dictate what you can or can't yeah. eat. Or Hindus, even Hindus, they can't eat cows, you know. But in addition to those three reasons, a few dec- decades ago, there was a big law that shaped China's wildlife industry. In 1988, the Wildlife Protection Law encouraged people to domesticate and breed certain species of wildlife for various reasons, um, food and, and medicine being two of them. But in 2016, the government limited wildlife breeding to only scientific research and preservation. But by then, the, the wildlife farming industry was already booming and there was millions there were millions of people employed um, and it was feeding millions more. However, it's important to state that only a minority of people consumes this produce. And we're talking pangolins and bats and all sorts of weird stuff mm, um, yeah. that's being bred for food. And that figure is less than 1% of, of the people in China. And in the wake of the COVID pandemic, the regulations on the wildlife industry They've been tightened even further. Of course, yeah. Uh, But, you know, I also have a theory. And I don't know if there have been any studies into it. There may be, there may have some truth attached. There may be. And that is that frequent famines throughout Chinese history have shaped what people eat today. Well, when, when I went home to Ireland with my wife, we went to the beach um, and she had never seen anything like it before she went to the rocks and I showed her some limpets and if you don't know what a limpet is a limpet is a a shellfish that attaches itself to rocks and when the water comes in it's off the rock and then when the water goes away it sticks itself really tightly to the to the rock yeah so much so that you wouldn't even notice that it's there it it's it's actually attached in such a way that it's basically like a, a, a part of the rock um, and I showed my wife these things the first thing she wanted to do was eat it yeah uh, like, I mean food is so important in the Chinese psyche uh, for instance it's customary for people to ask each other Nichilama, which means have you eaten yeah uh, now what's so special about that you ask well the interesting thing is Rather than just being a question that you might ask someone after mealtime, uh, it's also used as a greeting, uh, as in a common substitute to asking someone how they are. I like it. I like the caring nature of it. It's endearing. Yeah, it's it's basically a more or less a hello, like welcome, uh, good morning. You know, Chuzalfalama, have you eaten breakfast? It's, that's what they say. But what they really mean is. You know, you all right? Are you okay? Yeah. Um, yeah, and, I, and I've often wondered if it has deeper roots, a deeper meaning. Why the use of this phrase in particular? Well, you have to remember that Chinese people didn't always have enough food to eat. And 
We've had regime changes, foreign invasions, natural disasters, droughts, famine. There's always been periods in history prior to the modern era um, and including the modern era where people lacked nourishment. And there lies the reason behind one of the biggest misconceptions about Chinese people, that they are short in stature. Mm. Now, it's partially correct, but only when referring to the very elderly, really. Mm. You see, as recently as the late 1970s, 30% of China's population was undernourished. People lacked a balanced diet and grains supplied the overwhelming uh, majority of their calories. One in three children under the age of five had stunted growth. Yeah, um, but if you look at the children now, especially the, the teenagers, some of them are giants. Basketball is more or less the national sport in China and they have no shortage of players. Yeah, and we spoke last week about the fitness drive across the country. Uh, people now are better able to look after themselves. They eat well and they try to stay in shape, at least for the most part. Uh, and a lot of this is down to the advances made to the economy. Uh, China like, has evolved to become this global power that has put their past trials and tribulations behind them. Famine is a bygone word. Oh, most definitely. Um, I eat more fruit here than I ever did in Ireland. Um, but China today is so different. After the turn of the new millennium, fewer than one in ten Chinese people were undernourished. Uh, the consumption of meat has nearly doubled and the consumption of fruit has tripled in the past three decades. Um, and like I say, I, lo- I eat more fruit here than I would ever dream of eating in Ireland because it's so cheap and it's everywhere. Yeah, and there's a greater variety of it. And there's a greater variety. Of, I, I didn't know what half of them were. Yeah. When I first came here, I was like, ooh, what's that? Ooh, what's that? Ooh, what's that? It's a dragon fruit. That, that's the most disappointing fruit in the world. <laughs> that is the too bad. That it, no, it doesn't taste too bad. It's bland, though. Uh. It looks like it should taste like fire itself. <laughs> you know, it lo- sh- looks like it should have just such a sharp taste. But no, it's just, just grand. It's just all right. You'd rather eat a kiwi. Um, me, I'd rather eat a kiwi. Anyway, so the weight of children at birth has risen. And the average six-year-old child now is two inches taller, five centimetres taller than in the 1970s. And remarkably, China feeds 20% of the world's population using less than 10% of the arable land. And there's plenty of food left over. There's always food left over to ex- export. That is remarkable. Yeah, it is. It's crazy. Um Food has basically fueled the Chinese miracle. And if you go back 50 years to the 1970s, China had endured a famine in nearly every decade throughout the 19th and the early to mid 20th centuries, um, including the big one in 1907, which actually led directly led to the downfall of the Qing dynasty. Um, and there was one during the Taiping Rebellion that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Um, now, being Irish, we can we can definitely empathise with Chinese people on the topic of famines. I mean, our country, we had plenty of our own famines down through the years, and we know it's a delicate subject, and people don't like talking about it much because there's a huge mental and emotional scars that it causes. Yeah, and it's a taboo topic, uh, and perhaps 
the deadliest of these famines in China, uh, and I think the most recent one, was the Great Famine. Uh, and this lasted between 1959 and 1961. So not all that long ago. Uh, now, this famine killed people in the tens of millions. Estimations range from 15 to 55 million people. Uh, and it's one of those events in history where nobody can be sure of the exact number. And in this case, that number is so wide ranging. And you introduced me to a memoir on the topic of food of famine. Yeah, I did. Uh, it's a short piece written by famed Chinese author Yi Yunlie. Now, who is she? Yi Yunlie is, without doubt, one of the finest authors alive today, uh, as well as one of my favourites. Uh, she lives in the United States now, and she teaches at a university, I believe. Um, and she released an exceptional collection of short stories some time ago called A Thousand Years of Good Prayers, which I recommend everyone who loves reading tries to get a hold of. Uh, but yeah, she wrote this piece entitled The Man Who Eats, which was published in The New Yorker in September 2004. Uh, and it's a like a haunting Yes, quite touching story of hardship when food was scarce. A tale of a tale of hunger, in other words. Exactly, a tale of hunger. Uh, and you call it a memoir. I'm not, I'm not sure if it is a memoir or just a short story written about a, about some young girl in, in the third person. But nevertheless, uh, it's an extremely stark account of really tough times when food was rationed and soy sauce and vinegar were considered treats. Crazy, isn't it? That is, that's, that's far out. Uh... But it's it's funny because in places it's charming, this story, um, such as when the, the author, Ian Leah, she describes going to the market. And this, for me, is what makes Ian Leah such a fascinating writer. How she captures everyday life in China, the market scenes, the, the interaction between people. Um, these descriptions come alive when I read them. You can almost smell the bacon. I can, I can almost smell the bacon. Now, that's effective writing. Use the senses. Appeal to the senses. Absolutely. And with that, we're going to leave it there. That was quite the mouthful, wasn't it, Owen? Pardon the pun. I'm feeling peckish now. Remember, follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to us on YouTube, on Google Podcasts, or on iTunes. uh, Wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. And write to us. Tell us how we are. Um... Tell us who you are. Give us some feedback. Uh, the China Podcast, the China Podcast at Outlook.com. Yeah, you can email us there. Yeah, you can email us there. Um, so, it's dinner time. What do you want? Uh, rice noodles. How about rice noodles? Oh, yeah. Go on. Let's go. Toodles. <laughs> <笑>其实这样我好多有时候我不想啊比比我有时候一天都不说一句话我不说话就是蛮狠的我不说话就是没打我晓得的我不说话就是没打我俩所以说社会上的人走了我就不可怜我就一个事你不晓得别人是么回